Welcome to RAQA Today, the podcast that puts the fun back in quality, compliance, and regulatory affairs. Here's your host, Michelle Lott. Okay, so we're going to go through uh, trends in the OSEL, which is the Office of Science and Education and Learning in the FDA, and you're going to see how very early stage regulatory science is actively affecting pre-market reviews right now. So we're going to talk about what the OSEL is, the, their orthopedic devices program, and the regulatory science priorities, how all of this rolls up together. And then lastly, the guidance document for orthopedics that come out of these. If we look at the OSEL, this is the FDA's research arm of the agency. So the, their task is actually research science and developing policy as, a, as opposed to uh, regulatory oversight. So they have five different strategic divisions and it is a fairly new division. Now, it's a very impressive division. They're very active. They put out about 400 peer-reviewed articles a year across 140 research projects. And here's what's significant. Even though that this is for research, their experts participate in over 3,000 pre-market reviews a year. So I think that that's a pretty interesting leakage because this research is supposed to be feeding public policy, but the people doing the research are actively participating in product reviews for science that has not yet been, exist or, or been published. And then you can see that they've got their own laboratory, quite a large laboratory at 55,000 square feet. Their goal is to assess the safety and effectiveness of new devices as quickly as possible. And they have a mission statement that says, we accelerate patient access to innovative, safe, and effective device, medical devices through best in the world regulatory science. And so best in the world is significant, which we'll talk about in a moment. But, but the purpose of it is that even things that we thought were once simple because of the regulatory oversight and the regulatory science requirements behind them are becoming increasingly like a Rube Goldberg machine. And the data that you have to support them is getting increasingly burdensome. But again, to that best in the world medical devices, the FDA actually has a strategic initiative to uh, be the choice for 50% of the world's manufacturers to be the first market that they want to bring their products to uh, market in. And so this was their goal to achieve by the end of December 2020. And they did a survey uh, of people who submitted pre-submissions, uh, EUAs for novel technology, and 62% of people surveyed said that they would prefer to bring a device to market in the U.S. first. Now, this will be changing in the next year or two as the MDD certificates expire and people will go through the, the pain of MDR. So if we look at the program areas for the OSEL, we have one that is very specific for orthopedic devices, but if you, if we, when we look at the initiatives in the future, we're going to see that they tie into a handful of other strategic initiatives and without looking at these as a whole, we're not going to really understand what the FDA is going to expect out of orthopedics. 
So for the orthopedic device program, the whole point is to develop new tools, standards, and approaches to assess the um, safety and efficacy, to ensure that the regulatory decisions are well-founded in that a novel idea for the FDA, to have a well-founded decision-making process for your review, um, and uh, to facilitate good decision-making. So the problem is that, that technology is moving so fast that you have uh, knowledge gaps that are getting larger every day. And so the ones on the right here came out of the last batch of FDA strategic priorities uh, that, I, around 2000, that were set around 2011. And then these come out of ones that were set around 2018 that extend into this year. So if we look at the regulatory science gaps and challenges, we have got uh, the problem with there's a lack of established test methods and computational models. We have limitations on the existing models. And then the last one is really on industry. We have insufficient adoption of the models that are out there and do exist, so therefore we have limited information on their true utility. So this is fascinating. So because we have this lack of established test methods, this is what's happening in the development cycle. This is traditionally, we have got, the, the, we have got this early development where you have basic research, early discovery, and preclinical. And then we go through this whole phase of human testing prior to our FDA interactions and review. Um, and then the goal of regulatory science is where can we take this kind of mid part that takes a lot of time, a lot of money, and we have a lot of unknown risk to the patient and push these unknowns upstream into early discovery. So this is truly the goal of the regulatory science program and the, the initiatives. We also have limitations because there's a breakdown between real-world data, real-world evidence, what it even is, how the FDA has even defined it and how they intend to use it, and is it going to really give us real-world answers once we figure out what to do with it. So we also have insufficient adoption of the computational techniques. So we have all of these evidence methods that we can glean from with claims and billing data, registry, laboratory and test data, patient-generated electronic health records set in the context of historical clinical studies and computational modeling. And so the reason that this is insufficient is that, again, if we look at the development cycle, we have, uh, you know, th this is the phase where we typically establish the risk credibility model, model. And it starts with defining the context of use. It goes through your, your validation plan and execution. And then finally, we, after V and V, at the end of the process, then we assess the model for credibility. What if we had tools that we could push this assessment of credibility back past VNV, back establishing upstream into defining the use cases for the credibility. 
So imagine how much time and money it would be if, if manufacturers, instead of doing it here, and at maybe some point you have failed and had to redo V&V &V multiple times or done feasibility studies, that we could define it up into the definition of the context of use. So that would save a lot of time, it would save a lot of money, it would save a lot of uh, patient interaction with devices that are not gonna work. But what does context of use sound like to, in, to you guys? Yeah, anybody familiar with ISO 62366 for usability, human factors? And FDA is asking for more and more human factor studies and submissions, but this is why, because this graph came right out of an FDA paper on uh, this topic where they're trying to assess model credibility right at the start before we've even done any of the, the validation activities. So here are the four primary initiatives for the orthopedic device program. Notice how short they are in context. So we've got preclinical, pre mechanical, clinical functional, and biological performance. We have, they wanna create frameworks to examine failure mechanisms for mechanical bench modeling. We have, they want to create computational modeling for functional performance and identify preclinical uh, test methods. So all that's con uh, consistent with what we just saw, but what do those even really mean? Because there's no context around them. There's a single page on the FDA website that has like four sentences and some other jabber. So what we have to do to understand by what they meant by those four things is get in the spider web of the rest of the OSEL initiatives because they unravel what did FDA meant in that one statement or that one initiative. So you can see the program activities spiral out just based off of those four statements and now we overlap with AI and machine learning, the credibility of computational models, materials performance, additive manufacturing, and biocompatibility and toxicology. Um, all of these are separate OSEL initiatives that directly affect those four that we just talked about. So initiative one says that the evaluation of strategies for assessing preclinical, mechanical, clinical and functional, and biological performance of novel orthopedic devices shall be established. That's it, what does it mean? Well now we have to go and look at what is the OSCL doing in the areas of biocompatibility and toxicology and materials uh, performance to understand this statement and its requirements. So if we look at biocompatibility, we see that we have got requirements that the alternative approaches with improved predictability and clinical responses, as well as how to predict false negatives. We've got chemical characterization requirements for extractables and leachables um, to be defined, and predictive computational toxicology to reduce the reliance on biological testing. And so we can see that we've got, you know, a sub in the area of biocompatibility and toxicology, we've got sub-programs for all three of those things. And if we go over to the initiative for material performance, similarly, we've got, you know, a half dozen initiatives in material performance around clinically relevant estimates for patient exposure to uh, leachables, uh, to be able to predict corrosion and wear debris, 
for different alloys. And we've got more. They also have initiatives around how to assess absorbable materials and the test methods to assess and predict short and long-term biocompatibility, stability, and durability of polymers and implants, and test methods to address mechanical performance, and test methods to assess novel advanced manufacturing devices. And you can see how already, just for this one initiative, we have to understand two other initiatives and about 10 other subparts so far just to understand what, what will be rolled up and come out of that one objective. So if we look at initiative two, this is that uh, we will have experimental and computational frameworks to examine failure mechanisms of orthopedic devices. Well, what is that going to entail? Because again, this is just a single statement on the FDA website. Well, we now have to look at what are the initiatives around AI and machine learning. And in these areas, we've got specific objectives to enhance AI and ML training and testing for small clinical data sets, to have study designs that are based on AI and ML for computer-aided triage, to have specific imaging performance for DL-based denoising image reconstruction algorithms. And again, we have uh, more, you know, there's a total of about half dozen here around QI and radiometrics, so parking lot that one because that's hot off the presses with the FDA. We'll talk about that in a minute. For adaptive AI and ML algorithms and for how data acquisition factors are, are assessed and developed. And we're not done because now we have to move um, from the AI and ML into the credibility of computational models to understand this initiative. So the goal here is to define new credibility for the assessment frameworks, capturing the wide range of modeling principles, clinical domains, and regulatory submissions. So now we have a clear statement that these things are going to impact submissions as if we didn't suspect it already. Also, we have domain-specific research related to the credibility of computational models. Uh, expected, again, for regulatory submissions. So this is the second time we have seen regulatory submissions going to be directly impacted from the work that comes out of the OSEL. Initiative three says the computational models and bench tests for examining mechanical and functional performance of total joint replacement devices. So uh, again, we have got to go, but the, the single statement very specific to a type of orthopedic device, but that's all we got. So we've got to go back in the spider web, and we've already talked about the initiatives around AI and machine learning and credibility of computational models, but now we're taking this third initiative is taking another dive into those um, related areas. Initiative four, the preclinical test methods to better predict the clinical fretting and corrosion and performance. Again, we're back into the areas of biocompatibility and toxicology and materials performance, but now we also have to consider the FDA's initiative around additive manufacturing. So the problems with um, additive manufacturing is it's a little less technical in nature and, then, and a little less heavy than, than the, those areas that we just talked about. And it's a little bit more philosophical because now you're talking about what does process validation and process monitoring look like for an additive manufacturing process. 
what are the quality system challenges around that? What should the quality system controls look like? And then what is the software workflow to be able to validate these things uh, in manufacturing? So we can see how the uh, additive manufacturing initiatives are going to directly impact what's coming out of orthopedics or the expectation. And this is, again, I'm only covering a handful of ones that I felt like were very clearly directly um, linked to orthopedic initiatives, but this is the spider web of how all of these things connect around that single orthopedic um, focus. So now what if we take a look at how, so we see, you know, regulatory science division is, is supposedly this early stage that kind of sets the policy and does research for the technology that's coming through in submissions. Well, the FDA at a higher level also sets strategic priorities for each division. So if we look at the CDRH priorities for 2018 to 2022, so we can anticipate this year we're going to get a new set of strategic priorities that build upon these. So the goal of strategic priorities is to improve the safety, effectiveness, and performance and quality of medical devices. And most important, uh, the most important regulatory, and to identify the most important uh, gaps in regulatory science or needs. And so we, we see that the priorities are going to directly affect the vision of the OSCL, and the OSCL affects what FDA expects in submissions. So if we just take a look at a handful, like the top 10 priorities for 2018 to 2022, we can see how these have set the tone for those OSCL initiatives that we just discussed. We can see that one of them was to develop computational modeling technologies to talk about digital health and cybersecurity healthcare associated affections, how to collect and use patient input, precision medicine and biomarkers, how to leverage big data, how to modernize biocompatibility. We saw about the half dozen initiatives there. Leverage real world evidence, monitoring for clinical performance, and then streamline clinical trial design. So if we take an example just associated with that priority for modernized biocompatibility, one of the very specific milestones that came out of that was that for more accurate, timely, adverse event monitoring um, to report for, to, for that reporting to occur, that there's a need to standardize terminology pertaining to implant-related adverse events outcomes, um, specifically to identify clinical signs of toxicity. So this was a particular objective of this priority. And you can kind of see how the initiatives that they sat in the biocompatibility arm of OSEL are directly related. And here's why it's important. If you look across the board at adverse events reported at, across a number of orthopedics, you have got either no code available adverse event without identified device or use problem across uh, some of the, the top hitters for orthopedics. So this is another product code. Again, no information, no code, adverse event without identified data, insufficient information. And again, no code, no code, adverse event without identified information. And so that's led to um, 
you know, the FDA, uh, you know, really wants industry to avoid this no code available because they can't use no code available to identify what's going on with the adverse events. How are the OSEL performances? What is the, what should the next initiatives be? So you, for, tips for industry is avoid that no code available. There are literally hundreds of codes that exist and I really have trouble believing that, that one of them doesn't get remotely close to what happened with, with these devices. And if you're unsure, actually reach out to the FDA and ask them how they would code it in, in that event to improve this post-market surveillance activities. So another example of an initiative associated with the strategic priorities is the National Evaluation System for Health Technology. And, this, and so you can see how the strategic priorities build now because the creation of NEST actually came out of the priority set in 2016 to 2017. And now, so they established it, step one, and now they have a specific uh, initiative and priority around to generate better evidence for the evaluation of regulatory decision-making. The FDA is collaborating with stakeholders to build the NEST. And then they also, and the purpose of NEST is to, to gain and clarify real-world evidence. So we're back to this real-world evidence discussion. So this is what the life cycle of NEST looks like. You have all of these stakeholders from regulators, uh, patient groups, payers, clinician groups. And so this is important that industry participates in this. This is kind of like voting. Like if you don't vote, do you really get a say in public policy or get to complain about it? If the FDA is asking for your participation and your opinion, you know, you have an obligation to participate and tell them your thoughts and contribute to the ecosystem. So if we look, um, how is NEST going to drive real-world data versus real-world evidence? And, and what is even the, the difference in these two? Well, the FDA has defined that real-world data is data that describes health status and or the delivery of healthcare routinely collected from a variety of sources. These include electronic health records, claims and billing, product and disease registries, in-home use settings, data gathered from other sources uh, that can inform health status like smartphones. And you compare and contrast that to how the FDA has defined real-world evidence as evidence uh, of the usage and potential benefits of risks or medical product derived from the analysis of real-world data. So in, in theory, the real-world data is, is supposed to inform real-world evidence in the form of open-label trials, randomized trials, observational studies, decentralized trials, and placebo-controlled trials. The problem is, is that the FDA says that, you know, the, the diverse sources of real-world data are combined to generate real-world evidence. So it's a real fuzzy line about what's what and what camp does it fall into and how are you going to be able to use it in your submissions. Well, here's an example of how real-world evidence played a role in getting an important orthopedic product to market. So this is the Depuy. Uh, orthopedic Ceramax, what they did here was use registries 
of real-world data around the world, um, and they, in this case, they, they specifically used registries out of the UK and the Australia as their source of real-world data. They used it in their submission to make a case that this counts as real-world evidence, and they proposed that instead of having to do extensive pre-market trials, that instead we could do a post-market registry will be collected and analyzed uh, for survivorship death rates in the post-market uh, situation. So this is an example of how to use uh, real-world data to ma make the case for real-world evidence and maybe more post-market work than pre-market work. The same has happened in pediatric devices for this particular uh, Zimmer spinal implant. Um, what they did was that they had clinical data that had been collected in a post-market way. So, so in, the, in the trial, the physicians decided to use another similar device that was cleared or approved for adult populations in pediatrics. And so they went back to that study data and they reanalyzed it um, retrospectively for the, the pediatric population. And again, they were allowed to use it because they had been using this in HDE circumstances. So they were allowed to use that data in a pre-market way and, get, and go to market and then get post-market uh, studies to further substantiate their case. So these are two examples of how to turn real-world data into real-world evidence and use it to shorten your path to pre-market. Another consideration is for the Orthopedic Strategically Coordinated Registry Net Network, or CRNs, um, and this is a whole strategy to bring together that real-world data from multiple stakeholders by building uh, linked uh, databases and data systems. FDA actually had a public meeting on this with a transcript about what these are and how to use them and, and how industry should be thinking about them. And so what you really need to take away here is that you need to utilize uh, post-market data in, a, in, pre, in your pre-market applications. And, so, and don't look at necessarily at your device as a standalone. Look across what are, uh, what's happening in other people's clinical trials. Look at what's happening OUS. What can you glean and apply um, uh, crosswise to your product? And look beyond the FDA available um, adverse event databases and recall databases. Uh, what can you do with your post-market surveillance data? Um, another example of, of this is that uh, for one of the top 10 priorities, FDA wanted to employ evidence synthesis uh, across that real-world evidence, and they wanted to, they created the Orthopedic Rapid Comparison Analysis Program, which is an FDA database of design and mechanical testing data that has been um, conglomerated across multiple submissions. And the purpose of this is to allow fast identification of predicates and a larger scale um, analysis of product areas and, and even um, possible failure modes. So ORCA, as it's called, uh, the, this database houses a ton of the, that design and mechanical data and it publishes peer-reviewed journal articles that you can use in your submission 
to justify different product features because now you can compare it across not only product features but performance testing. Maybe if you have a different unique product feature, but now you can compare it to other people's product features by de your design and mechanical testing data, uh, you can r reduce the burden to prove that it's safe and effective, even though it's novel. So tips, uh, use your publicly available literature, use your peer-related journal articles that contain summaries of that relevant uh, uh, performance data, because again, this can um, be points of justification and maybe help reduce the burden on, on your VNV testing, much less your clinical data. So guidance documents for orthopedics. Now this was published as recently as the end of 2021. How many initiatives did we see that were referencing computational models and that those ones referencing computational models specifically said that this was going to impact regulatory submissions. Well, here it is. This came out in draft at the end of last year, assessing the credibility of computational modeling and simulating medical and simulation in medical device submissions. So this is in all submissions that use computational modeling. The problem is, is that, you know, we can see the, F the FDA and OSEL says what they're thinking. They don't tell you when they're thinking it. They don't tell you when it's going to come out. So you have to be aware of what all these things are because you never know when they're going to hit and impact your submissions. And so for all you engineers in the room, I guarantee you somebody on your teams has told your regulatory and quality people when they said, hey, guess what? This came out in draft. They're going to say, don't worry. Tell them it's just a draft. It's not going to impact our submission. Well, the FDA has already been thinking about these things for years. They've already been trying these things out in submissions via the mechanisms of additional information requests that you did not understand where the additional information requests came from because you didn't understand what the FDA was thinking about in terms of their strategic priorities and their initiatives. And then it seemed like a surprise when you get additional information about things they haven't published. So here you go. And another one uh, came out just yesterday. Remember when I told you to park and lot the QI and the uh, radio, radio mix? Came out just yesterday about qualitative in, quantitative imaging. And was that one final? You're, you're, yeah, so that one was final. The other gap we have is that the time it takes between something's a draft and a final can also be a matter of months, it could be a matter of years, it could be not at all. Um, so these are real challenges for regulatory and quality people to discuss with their engineering teams and then people are surprised when they get inter additional information requests. So this is an example of how these things are going to directly impact your submissions. So the OSEL scientists serve as expert consultants and, and I want to pause there. A lot of these people are not direct employees of the FDA. There is a chance that there could be strategic competitors of yours that are considered experts maybe in computational modeling or biocompatibility that might also be serving as an expert in OSEL that might be called in to review your submission because more than 2,500 of the consulting reviews that OSEL does were, that were competed, completed in 2017, 500 were completed by 36 scientists 
uh, interviewed for this perspective. Most of them were in neurological devices, then cardio and ortho devices, then imaging systems and surgical systems. So you can see like ortho is the number two area that they're called in to consult. So of these uh, 500 submissions that, that were where the, the scientists were interviewed, 220 included uh, consults on computational modeling and digital evidence. 9% um, of, uh, of all these expert consultants by OSEL for the regulatory offices in 2017 involved computational modeling. Of those 220, the submission types breaks down as follows. This is fascinating to me. 510K is the top contributor. You would think that OSEL would be involved in de novos or PMAs or things that were doing something new, novel, challenging, high risk, but they are primarily called in to consult at a 510K level where you're theoretically just making a Me Too device. So why do you need the people who are thinking about regulatory science as a consult here, except for that their opinion is supposed to inform the things that regular, the OSEL is thinking about. So this means that, that in, uh, for computational modeling in regulatory submissions, the purpose was to identify the appropriate bench testing configurations, such as worst case or clinically challenging conditions for orthopedic and surgical implants. So these are just a few other examples of guidances published between 2020 and 2022 that you can see all came directly out of an OSEL initiative. And another interesting thing is that three of these are specifically um, about sa the safety and performance-based pathway, which is this new 510K that, uh, pathway that FDA is trying out where you rely less on a predicate comparison and more on performance and bench data and less on clinical data. So th this is where like all of the priorities uh, are kind of coming together for FDA from a multiple, multiple different initiatives. And this is also because you remember that, that section where kind of clinical was in the middle, this is also FDA's effort to push clinical or either earlier in de development or make submissions less reliant on human clinical trials. In summary, you know, first off, look at the orthopedic initiatives from the OSEL and then look behind them uh, or beyond them into what are the other initiatives that are going to inform or drive them. Expect standardized terminology to come out um, and, of MDRs and if you don't voluntarily find a more appropriate code, you know, the, the, uh, you can guarantee that uh, FDA is going to come and start defining them for you. And then look at your post-market uh, databases. Uh, use your po as much post-market data as you can in terms of published literature and real-world data to create integrated standard submission um, pra preparation practices. And then anticipate it coming. You need to anticipate that and tell your teams that okay, if you don't want to take these potential mitigations or do these things yet, you just need to be prepared that you could get these additional information requests based off of these new priorities because we can anticipate that it's a high likelihood we could have an OSCL reviewer involved in some way here. You know, in, in terms of, you know, specifically some of the ones uh, related to biocompatibility, you know, I had seen for 
two, three years um, across many different device types that strange additional information coming back for, um, for biocompatibility tests, justifications. Um, why did you use that extract instead of this ex extract? And, you know, we would tell clients that, hey, this is what FDA, you're going to get an AI for this. And they're like, well, show me where it says that. That's classic, right? And you couldn't because these were initiatives they were testing out and asking for information. And so um, then, you know, about two years ago, they finally published this guidance document, and it said exactly what they had been saying unspoken in reviews in additional information. So this is how all this rolls up into the review process and how, you know, it's really a crystal ball and it's a little bit more transparent than, than you may anticipate. So I've got some tools on my website for regulatory pathway assessments and business market assessments, particularly if you're going into MDR, the second one's helpful in the EU. You know, log in and, and get those and then I can help you with a variety of different things uh, for your regulatory projects. Now, do you guys have any questions for me? Question on the, the OSEL and the, the data that they're working on. Is there a live update of that? Like, do you put out kind of like regular reports or updates? How do you recommend that you know, folks follow along if it's not their full-time responsibility? Yep. That is that is very different, difficult because, like I said, the the timing between you know, there are these things that are happening behind the scenes that you don't know about, and then all of a sudden you see a draft guidance document. So all I can say is is really take those draft guidances more seriously, as if they're going to become final and move towards what they they say they're thinking in the draft, rather than seeing how fluid is that opinion going to be and then just know and be aware of these things that they exist period because most people don't um, and you're already kind of ahead of the game and then then if you know they're coming you've already got your ear to the ground and then you can hear the rumblings and recognize it when it when it happens.